This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 3rd of July 2018, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my co-host, Jon. Good day, matey. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I am indeed back on the correct side of the planet now. <laughs> oh, don't talk about the correct side. Don't don't blame the other people for you being in Britain. <laughs> yes, for those that, that aren't familiar with my travel schedule, I've been in uh, Australia and New Zealand for a few weeks um, with uh, some fine folk at IBM. And, uh, hi to everybody that I met down there. And uh, doing some uh, delivering the keynote session at a, a bunch of different events that uh, Hortonworks and IBM were jointly running. Um, interesting times. Uh, I was uh, talking about the fact that uh, AI begins with governed data and really just highlighting the fact that, yeah, AI and machine learning and all these things are fabulous, but unless you have uh, data you can trust, it all doesn't mean a thing. So obviously, you know, training data and that sort of thing, being able to trace that back to its original source and all the provenance behind it and traceability. And you're going to have systems, automated systems responding on behalf of your company, then you'd better make sure you can trust what they're, uh, what they're tra- being trained on. It so, yeah. sounds like a great episode for us. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> we could even get some, some of the folks from IBM to come and join us, maybe. But not today. But not today. No, not today. So today uh, we're going to be talking about the DataWorks Summit San Jose. Um, I didn't go this year, and that's because aforementioned travel um, pretty much overlapped with uh, the start of DataWorks. But have no fear. Uh, We have a special guest today, Ward Becker, who's uh, come to talk to us about his DataWorks Summit experience. Hello, Ward. Hello, everybody. So... uh Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you here. Um, do you want to give the audience uh, a, f- a few words about uh, about you, where you are, and what you're up to? Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, Ward Becker. I'm based out of uh, Amsterdam and uh, actually are working for Hortonworks. So I'm a colleague of you, Dave. Indeed. Uh, so so for, for, for good or for worse. And... Um, <laughs> Mainly, and uh, yeah, so so and uh, a little bit about my background. So I actually uh, started out as a developer. So did a lot of programming in all kinds of languages. Um, feel free to uh, ask me uh, offline what my favorite language is. I have some opinions about that, uh, but not for today. Um, yeah, and I'm, I was really interested in uh, going to uh, the summit in uh, San Jose uh, because I was there also last year. And there is so much great sessions there that uh, there were this year there were over 170 sessions, and uh, unfortunately I didn't have the time uh, to go to every one because that required me to clone myself. But uh, <laughs> I did see quite a nice uh, selection of sessions, and from some of the sessions that I couldn't attend, uh, the slides are now out, so that's also quite good. Mm-hmm. So I had a chance to review those slides uh, which actually contained a lot of interesting stuff yeah and the um the youtube video should be out within a, a week or so i think it should be quite quite quick i think this time yeah they're usually quite quick for the american version that was a bit slower mm. for the european one i always feel discriminated yeah that's <laughs> just because there's less bandwidth available to see uh, I don't know, because uh, I've always been told that the uh, whole ADSL broadband situation in Europe is better than the US at the moment. 
because we started later. I think, the, I think the broadband. We're getting slightly off topic here, but I think <laughs> broadband to the um, to the residences generally, I think, is better in Europe. But I think the the core infrastructure oh, okay. is better in the US. Okay. Anyway, welcome, Ward. Hey. So, Dave, how do you want to do this? So, I think you know, just let's uh, let's kick things off. Let's go through. Uh, what was your experience like? And, uh, yeah, just run us through how it all went for you. Yeah, maybe have a yeah. summary global thing at the end. Yeah, sounds okay. like a plan. Okay, great. Yeah, so, uh, well, this year it was uh, being held in uh, again in San Jose, uh, the McHenry Convention Center. I think that the week before there was the WWDC event from Apple, if I was not mistaken. And it is being held there for the last 11 years. And uh, so that was also a newsflash next year. It's not going to be held there anymore, huh? but it's I going to be held that. in Washington, D.C. So on the East Coast. Wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a big change. So uh, uh, a lot of folks need to migrate to the mm -hmm. East Coast. Uh, but I think that's quite good news because there's a lot of uh, big data use mm -hmm. for the federal audience there Definitely. and uh, so uh, they don't need to go west anymore they can stay where they are and uh, then only the silicon valley folks need to migrate so that's uh that's maybe also a big ch good change i think it's good for the silicon valley folks to you know see a bit of the real world as well <laughs> you know just you know, out of the little bubble. Uh, little bubble there yeah, the, yeah that's good. out of the bubble yeah yeah uh, is it the sure it, go ahead oh yeah i'm, I'm just not sure if they know how to uh, go about there because they don't have any self-driving cars there <laughs> um, you, you cannot order everything from your app um, I'm, I'm not sure if a lot of folks will uh, will manage there uh, so, some other thing that they might uh, want to miss out there was a lot of motopads there in uh, san jose I'm not sure if you uh, ever run into them but you could um, hire um, motopads with your mobile phone and uh, there were like uh, kind of a ride-sharing motopad and there were every everywhere over the city and <laughs> those things go really fast so um, I didn't try it because it looked really dangerous um, <laughs> but that yeah that's the thing there so people will miss out on that also in Washington DC but uh, yeah. yeah now it's a uh, it's it's definitely a uh, uh, for this year, the convention center it, it's really good, and they have great Wi-Fi. Uh, they have uh, some good coffee, and uh, yeah, was re was really good. Uh, there were a lot of folks there this year, and uh, yeah, well, and I actually arrived there on Monday, where we had the birth birds of a feather, or how do you say that? Oh no, the meetups actually yeah, on the, meetups, the first yeah. day. Yeah, the meetups. So I joined the cybersecurity meetup, which was uh, pretty well attended. Um, and uh, after that, the day, keynote day one started. So that was uh, on Tuesday uh, with the big main keynotes. So, um, and the keynotes, uh, there were quite a few actually. Um, so it started all with a nice video uh, talking about that the future is in our ideas, insights, innovations, and limitless possibilities came, comes out of that. So, so no buzzwords at all. Yeah, I felt very warm inside after that. It was really good to see. Um, maybe also good uh, for Dave to know the audio was still way, way too, uh, how do you say that? Too, too oh, much? Way too loud. Yeah, yeah, way too loud. Um, um, so I, I definitely felt it in my, my whole body. Um, 
Uh-huh. Yeah, last so, last year for those that that uh, that didn't attend, um, I actually ended up I put earplugs in just just during the the intro music because the you know the show and everything was great, but the it's just it's tuned way too loud. I will I yeah. will object. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and that was definitely the case uh, this time. So, and after that uh, inspirational video, we actually um, John Kreischer, the VP of Marketing, uh, take took the stage, and uh, we he started out, of course, with um, some general words, but he also did uh, a poll with the whole audience, and uh, as a test poll, they tried to ask the audience, "Who do you think will wo- win the World Cup of Saucer that's currently going on?" Uh, so the football world cup and i can't remember the exact results but i hope that a lot of people didn't pick germany because they're <laughs> going to be disappointed right <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah spoilers spoilers <laughs> oh spoiler alert nah, it's yeah so um but, but uh, after that we uh, did a little bit more uh, on topic a poll with the audience uh, that was about how much of your data and analytics are you moving to the cloud Mm. And uh, what do you think uh, came out of that? What, what what would you guess? So how much of their data? Yeah, how much of their data analytics are you moving to the cloud? So mm. all the stuff that they currently have on premise, how much of the data, how much of that stuff of those workloads do you want to move to the cloud? Oh. So I, I I wouldn't guess exact numbers, but I would guess that the results from the poll were probably less conservative than the similar poll that was made in the European DataWorks Summit, but still mm-hmm. not necessarily all that impressive. Uh, I would, I would uh, expect it to be quite high, to be honest. Of course, I'm, I'm an Azure guy, so I want things to come to the cloud. <laughs> but uh, in the US, uh, yeah, I know that a lot of people are moving that way. It always depends on who's in the audience, of course, but the big data guys, on the one hand, they have the data gravity problem, on the other hand, they have the opportunity of doing the analytics there. So I would say, I would say that more than 50%. Yeah, it was actually interesting to see. So um, indeed, if, if you see, okay, 50% of the workloads and data moving to the cloud, um, everything above that 50%, I think that was also 50% of the audience. So that was interesting wow. to see. Yeah. Um, if you look at, okay, uh, 75% of your workloads to the cloud, that was around 25%. Oh, uh, only 12% said a full 100%. Still still a big yeah. uh, big amount. Mm-hmm. But what's also interesting is that 25% said no, none, no workloads mm-hmm. at all to the cloud. I, yeah. I, I don't surprise that because I, I would imagine yeah. that a quarter of the audience there is actually involved in some kind of government or very privacy uh, thing. And there's a lot of certifications you have to jump through to go to the cloud and a lot of companies are still doing that at the moment so for them it's a yeah it's a no and some people just don't need it i mean cloud's good but it's not the panacea for everything yeah definitely of course it is sorry (laughs) (laughs) yeah i heard you actually swapping hats in between those two (laughs) phrases i'll cut that out in post nobody will hear it (laughs) <laughs> Nobody will hear it. Yeah, great. Yeah, for example, some other poll that was actually held uh, later that day that uh, was also quite interesting uh, because they asked to the audience, what is the, the tool of choice to build streaming applications? So which tool do you use to build your streaming applications? 
and, memory um, spark streaming yeah. kind of crushed the answer at DataWorks in Europe. That's got to be NiFi. Come on. And do you know how much uh, how much was there about Apache Flink in Europe? Uh, oh, not, not very much, much actually. Hardly anything. Yeah. No, because you would think that Apache Flink would be quite big in Europe because it yeah. comes from the Berlin University, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yeah. Um, so, well, in the US, uh, you saw indeed a big major win uh, by Apache Spark Streaming. Ah, so that was yep. 43%. Yes, it was the winner. And a good runner-up was actually Apache Kafka Streams with uh, oh. 34%. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And Apache Storm ten percent, and Apache Flink five percent. Ah, no And there was a no, no, I find no, no, no. And the uh, other was eight uh, percent. So uh, there's uh, still uh, a, quite a big bucket of uh, other technologies that people are looking at. Yeah, yeah it's still so, remarkable yeah. how Flink doesn't have a, a following. I mean, it's it's a it's a great product, and actually for streaming, it's better than Spark does. But they just don't have the limelight. They just never had that. I know, peak where everybody kind of started playing with it. Spark was there first, I guess. I mean, Flink was older, but Spark was there first in the limelight. And it just took the whole uh, the whole business. And is it? Do you think that Spark streaming's popularity is more related to the fact that, you know, you can, if you know Spark, you can very easily adapt whatever you know with Spark just to Spark streaming. And so that it's just, that yeah. simplified learning curve. Yeah, but Spark and Flink can both do the same thing. It's just that the, the underlying stuff, Flink is based on the streaming engine and Spark isn't. But yeah. if Flink had been there first with the big media presence, if I can say it like that, then Spark would would have been nowhere. But for some reason, Flink's just... Maybe it's, uh, as Ward said, Flink is a European thing. If you're so bad at marketing, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 I definitely... Logo, fi- but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I definitely agree with Dave that uh, oh. a lot of folks over the years already got accustomed to mm-hmm. the Spark model um, yeah. in the batch mode, and it's now a very easy switch to the streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, even it, if it might not be the the biggest, uh, best tech, uh, technology in that sense for streaming, yeah. it, it's it's definitely the ease of use and mm-hmm. the easy transition from that batch model to the streaming mm-hmm. model. And it's often good enough, so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we talk we talk a number of times about the difference between micro batch that Spark Streaming will give you, and you know the true real time that you'll get from something like Storm. But exactly as you said, in the majority of cases, micro batch is good enough. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a lower barrier to entry and a good enough kind of solution, you know, why would you look at anything else? Yeah. Do you guys think that uh, the existence of Databricks has anything to do with that? Because Databricks gives you Spark as a service and it's a low barrier of entry, has its problems as well. But Flink doesn't really have anything like that. So it's hard for people to actually start with Flink? Uh, I would say that data artisans are probably less well known than Databricks. Well, they don't um, have a service either, right? As far as I know, anyway. Yeah, they they don't have a service like that. But then I I don't really know of that. I'm trying to think if I know any. In fact, I don't know any organizations that are using Databricks service in production. So I I don't know how 
critical um, yeah, that, that sort of that sort of service from that perspective is yeah, but to I'm not like talking mainstream production. adoption. Uh, the thing is with the Databricks thing, a data scientist that wants to just play around a little bit, you can either download yeah. the sandbox and do it on your laptop, which you probably aren't allowed to install anything, or you can go to something like a Databricks and it's as a service, it's easy, but that's, again, you're right for the production thing, they're still working on making the interconnectivity a little bit more... Well, I was, I was hesitate to say mature because it's not even there yet. But at least there's something that for a data scientist just to play around with, or for schools, for example, it's easier to get started. The barrier of entry is, uh, is lower for a Spark yeah. uh, career, let's say, than for a, yeah. um, for a Flinkberry career. And also, it's a good step to use because if you then grow up to go to the big Hadoop clusters, while well, Spark is still there, while Flink is also not present in all of the big, uh, if you look at Hortonworks, Cloudera, Mapar, I think none of them ships, uh, ship Flink. Yep, correct. So it's a bit of a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess. Indeed. But I think we're getting a little bit <laughs> off topic. We so never do let's, that. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, let's redirect ourselves back to sunny San Jose. Um, Ward, carry on. Yeah, so uh, the first big uh, speaker was uh, Rob Bearden, Hortomerk CEO, and he had a his key message was that he saw uh, saw a big trend in uh, that businesses need to move to procedural from procedural processes to connected communities. Uh, so he saw that as a, a, the biggest business model transformation going on right now. Um, so. Uh, by connecting your customers' products and the supply chain and make uh, that very visible uh, and make it very easy to share data, um, you really become a data-driven a business that uh, can yeah, better serve the needs of uh, the current customers and, uh, of course, get a competitive adva- advantage out of that. So that was, of course, a very high-level business talk, um, but I, I think it's... Uh, hit on some some good key points uh they had a very nice use case from trimble which is a trucking company in the us uh, trimble also had a demo later that day uh, where they showed uh, blockchain uh, technology in, in a way they do smart contracts between uh, the folks that are ordering trucks and the execution of that uh, trip truck trip if you uh, say that like that in english <laughs> And um, yeah, uh, so for uh, uh, using blockchain also for that safety and compliance and uh, Mm -hmm. becoming a real data-driven company. So that was uh, quite good to see. Uh, There was later on, that was actually the next day, we had a breakfast for a lot of telco companies. And uh, there uh, we went into a little bit deeper what a connected community really means. Um, So talking about, okay, it really needs to be a multi-party. So it's not only yourself as a company, but also uh, all your suppliers, all your consumers, all your OAMs, uh, they need to be part of this uh, ecosystem. You need to be connected by data. So um, uh, all the types of data, public, private, real-time, historical data, and of course, cloud and on-prem. And uh, the memberships doesn't need to be like uh, hierarchical, but it really abide by need. So um, Mm -hmm. uh, around the business insights. So, and that's, that's something you typically see a lot uh, also with the companies I work with is they're m- more looking at creating capabilities and not so much around uh, really defining very specific processes. Uh, so it's, it's going to be a little bit more flexible and you need to have a data architecture that uh, enables that. So that uh, I found, found it uh, quite interesting, even uh, as it was not uh, that technical. 
So is this a kind of a move from the mindset where I will download all the available data in my own data lake and make my data lake bigger and bigger towards a new version where I don't download but make the connections to the existing data sets, wherever they may be? Yeah, I think so. I think so. In a GDPR world, that's actually a benefit because then you don't have the, the, the responsibility of doing the governance and lineage of that part where you just connect to. That's their problem at that point. And of course, less data duplication is always good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, during the presentation, that, that was not really specified mm-hmm. indeed, uh, but I can definitely see that because, of course, it's a bit of a waste to duplicate. Mm-hmm. And um, if you talk about capabilities, the, the owners of the data... Uh, or the producers of the data, uh, they can uh, maybe uh, create models or APIs that uh, mm-hmm. allow you to take best use of the data, right? They, they yeah, know yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly the problem domain and that kind of stuff. So it makes sense. Yeah, to, learning uh, curve step down, acceleration, yeah. whatever. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. the, the yeah. biggest uh, barrier is going to be, of course, how the companies trust each other to do this. That's always been uh, inside companies. It's already a bit of a battle to get people to release their data across communities it's going to be uh, interesting to see how that develops interesting yeah yeah and especially now with gdpr right Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, all the regulations around uh, data privacy and Mm -hmm. data security that uh, yeah but as i mentioned that might actually be uh, an impulse to do it because you can say oh it's not my responsibility because i'm just connecting i'm just consuming that data i don't have to own it so it might actually be an impetus to do it interesting right right i didn't think of that nice good yeah, so and next up was uh, Aaron C. Murphy, which was the co-founder and chief product officer at Hortonworks. And he showed uh, us a vision of um, a more portable architecture. Um, so you want to use the right environment for your workloads. So if you have an application, you want to see, okay, I might want to do it on-prem, but it might make sense to actually move this workload to the cloud and maybe back again and be very flexible with that. And you need to have a architecture that supports that. And what what you now what, what you actually saw in, in in the past was that the architecture for on-prem was a little bit different than in the cloud, which makes uh, moving those workloads a little bit complex. Mm-hmm. But uh, with a new architecture, and that's also supported with the launch of HTTP 3.0, uh, you see the move to a shared surface layer with uh, data governance and security in a centralized place. And uh, yeah, he, he pitched something that's called a data fabric, um, which is, I think, uh, concretely data plane, uh, which is an initiative of Hortonworks to manage all the data from one central place. And he said, okay, these are key enablers to, to do that. And especially around HTTP 3.0 with the containerization, um, really making all the environments very similar all the uh, all the standard components are there so you don't need to worry anymore uh, where to develop for but you can just easily move your workloads from uh, on-premise to the cloud and back again yeah and just to be clear that the sort of this shared service layer is the is one of the key pieces here because this means that you know on if you've got long-running services on-prem it's fine you know you've got your you do some data transformation, you mess around with some hive tables or whatever it might be, and that interaction is tracked, and that's all fine. You know, data's persisted in Atlas, so you can find out what happened to that data through its life cycle. When we're talking about cloud workloads, you know, you're spinning up ephemeral clusters that maybe take other data, manipulate it, 
and then the cluster gets you know the data gets persisted back to maybe cloud native storage or maybe it gets pushed back down to uh, a local on-prem environment but you in the old world you would have lost then the provenance of what had happened to that data what changes were made to it you know because the atlas and you know, ranger and all the other infrastructure would have died when the cluster got blown away but of course the this idea of the shared service layer means that whether you're you've got an ephemeral cluster in cloud or you've got a long running cluster on prem they're both talking to the shared service layer and this shared service layer is something that they a organization would install themselves either on prem or in the cloud is something that uh, hortonworks will give the service I think I, think I know the, the answer. Moment, <laughs> yeah, I think the, at the moment the plan is very much that this is something that the organization would install themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what what might happen in the future, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that uh, if there's a service available, why the hell not? But uh, customers would always have, of, of organizations always have the, the, the possibility to do it themselves. Because again, you're talking about very privacy conscious stuff, because even logs and metadata are important for privacy things. So if you have to make the step to put it on a third-party uh, cluster somewhere, that might uh, hinder acceptance, let's say. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so, and there was actually, uh, after that, there was a nice talk uh, from Rob Thomas from IBM. Uh, and you guys were at uh, DataWorks Summit Berlin, right? Yep. So this was yeah. basically the same talk. Well, the audience maybe wasn't there, so give it a little summary anyway. <laughs> Okay, okay, good, yeah. <laughs> so um, he told us what it takes to climb the AI ladder. So, so that he, he basically painted kind of a maturity model uh, for a company for the move to AI. Uh, don't start out with, with AI from the get-go. You actually need to start out with first making sure the data is there and you can consume the data and move from analytics to machine learning and then start using AI. Mm. And so it's kind of a, like a, a pyramid uh, where you need to have a proper foundation before you can move on to the next level. Um, and he pitched uh, some uh, core beliefs uh, from IBM uh, around that saying that, well, they, they believe that containers will rev re revolutionize the use of data. Um, and that uh, machine learning is really to automate the ladder to artificial intelligence. And I must say, for me, those terms are not that entirely clear. I'm not sure if you know uh, what he's pointing at, but uh, for me, that was a little bit uh, confusing. Um, it sounded good. Um, I want to climb the ladder. I want to do AI, but it was a little bit uh, too uh, generic for me. Um, I always like stuff to be a little bit more uh, concrete. Hmm. And uh, of course, one architecture. So I think he uh, aligned with uh, the previous speakers around multi-cloud. So having a multi-cloud native across private and public. So have the same runtime environment uh, there. Have, uh, also the same security and to have a kind of a 360 view on all the data that's under management on those environments. Mm -hmm. yeah. And after that, uh, there was a nice demo of a new product that um, IBM came out with, which is called Cloud Private for Data, uh, which allows you to collect, organize, and analyze Hadoop data. Um, well, that's that's something everybody can uh, take advantage of, right? Yep. Yeah. And the 
from memory, the um, I did watch the session, uh, but it was it was quite it was quite well polished in terms of seemed pretty easy to deploy, get up and running, and get results from fairly quickly. I mean, yeah, it, keynote demo, so you never quite know how much is smoke and mirrors and how much is 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 real world truth, <laughs> but but even so. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it uh, looked like a nice polished demo. Uh, seemed quite useful. Um, so, no, definitely good. Definitely good. Um, yeah, for, from there on, uh, there was uh, a keynote by Impetus. So the folks from Impetus, they were uh, a platinum sponsor, if I'm not mistaken, from, uh, for the DataWorks Summit. And they, well, I've, it felt a little bit as a commercial break, I must say. It was a little <laughs> bit too much uh, commercial uh, uh, with uh, a little bit light on the insights. Uh, but they were mm. talking about how they're the best company to migrate workloads mm. from traditional EDW to Hadoop, which is, of course, a very good uh, approach. And we see a lot of companies doing that. But it found, found it, I, I found it a little bit too commercial <laughs> for my mm. taste. Yeah, well, they're the yeah. sponsors, so I guess it's uh, the price to pay. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah, and then uh, we finished off with a nice, um, uh, yeah, really, uh, uh, with a guy from Forrester, and uh, we really talked about uh, some of the trends he was seeing, and of course, how you can take advantage of those trends if you are a uh, a company uh, mm-hmm. that does a lot of with uh, big data so he had some some nice concrete uh, pointers so he says uh, that uh, customers are nowadays in charge well that that makes sense right mm-hmm. um, he says that insights driven firms are winning and we see that all over that uh, companies yeah. that have the best uh, uh, interaction with their customers based on data uh, they're definitely uh, outperforming uh, the other companies in customer satisfaction and the third uh, trend that he saw was that exponential trends are still happening. So there's okay. still a lot of um, room of growth. So he pointed that we are in the bronze age of big data. So there's still, uh, yeah, still a lot of uh, room for growth, right? Hmm? Yeah, yeah, still at the beginning. The, the tools are there, but uh, yeah, it's not modern yeah. time yet. Okay. Yeah, and uh, the way to evolve your platform, um, he pointed out in three ways so first at the edge so and there's a lot of data generated in all kinds of systems at the edge of course you have your connected cars you have your it devices um, you have maybe some other edge uh, uh, points uh, for example uh, interaction with your customers and you need to make sure that you record that that you use that data for your analysis and uh, ingest that and make decisions on top of that uh, the second point that he mentioned was he sees a shift from DevOps to NoOps. <laughs> and that was quite interesting. So he was actually talking about uh, platform as a service and eventually actually uh, serverless computing, which is a big trend. So, mm-hmm. and I think the, the way I interpreted it was that he saw that as a, cost, as a company, you shouldn't do too much stuff that doesn't add a lot of value and really focusing on the stuff that does a lot of value should take advantage of everything that's available in the market that um, allows you to focus on the stuff that you're good at for example creating your uh, machine learning models your deep learning models and not so much on the infrastructure try to use a lot of the automations that's nowadays available 
um, so you can spend your time on uh, on on the on the cool stuff, on the stuff that really makes a difference for your business. Mm. I'm not not sure I necessarily agree with his view of uh, DevOps moving to no ops. Mm. I think most organisations are still struggling to work out how on earth they adopt DevOps. DevOps, <laughs> let alone moving on from it. But mm. I I do really like the idea that organisations really need to stop faffing around with underlying plumbing and focus what delivers focus on what delivers value for their organization because that's certainly what we've been preaching well since mm. the very beginning really yeah but that part is still going to involve quite a bit of devops and programming and whatever because yeah, yeah. Y- you can't only use things that are already as a service available because yeah. then everybody does the same thing you'd have a differentiation but yeah focus your devops uh, infrastructure work on the points where you do make differentiation don't make your own emotion detection algorithm yet again yeah use twitter for that indeed yeah exactly so and and the last point the last uh, takeaway was evolve from a lake to a fabric and i think that ties nicely into the points of the previous speakers yeah so look at um, going from that one central d- data lake to an environment where you have uh, a lot of more connections uh, between uh, entities and have a, have a consistent fabric between them that enables them to uh, do information sharing and have some good security and, uh, and all that good stuff. Did he touch on GDPR and governance at all? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, you were there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing, uh, that's actually a very good point because I was, of course, preparing for this uh, this session um, today and there was so much there. There were like over 170 sessions and at some point you're just like forgetting uh, the previous session that you have been to mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> <Not a feeling. laughs> it's, yes it's uh, so it's it's great but it, it definitely takes um, uh, you actually need to book another week after that just to consume all the yeah, data yeah, that yeah, you've yeah. received uh, to really take advantage of it that's of course why it's so great that all of the videos will become available online because you can review rewatch things because i know when i went to berlin i made notes yeah this was good but i have no idea what you said anymore so let's when they come online again Go to that session again virtually, let's say, just to make sure yeah. that uh, yeah, you get the the, 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 inst- the information from it. Yeah, okay. exactly, and especially around the technical uh, sessions that were held at DataWorks Summit. There's so much detail in the slides, in the <laughs> presentations. Uh, you really want to revisit them and uh, learn from that. Yeah, and go to the ones you couldn't see. But we'll talk about sessions in a second. Uh, just looking at because that's all the keynote stuff, right? For day one, yeah, for day, yeah, for day one, yeah. Uh, first reaction for me, it's uh, it's it's light on governance. If we look at uh, Berlin, it was actually very heavy on governance and stuff, and GDPR and everything like that. Of course, that was Europe. It may be less of an issue in America, but uh, from what you're talking here, it feels like l- less governance and more, yeah, the connected communities. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, I think you, you can definitely say that. So I, I think that um, at DataWorks Summit Berlin, there was a heavy focus on the GDPR, uh-huh. right? Because it yeah, affected, yeah. it was top of mind of all the companies. Uh, very immediate. And not, <laughs> yes, and I think that we'll, uh, we're actually leading that in Europe and the uh, mm-hmm. US. It probably will have the same uh, awakening, let's say, uh, later on, maybe mm. when there's uh, some more new privacy regulations coming their way. Yeah, well, I mean, they already have to comply, right? I mean, if you do any business with European customers, then you've also fallen on GDPR. So 
I mean, I know from uh, my own company where I work for that uh, it's been very important in uh, the last year, let's say. And uh, yeah, we're not living in a post-GDPR world. We're living in a GDPR world. So it's not something that happens one moment. It's just something that goes on for the rest of your life now, I guess. Mm. Well, I think uh, interesting. the initial hype and buzz has gone and people are now focusing on the next set of hype and buzz. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to the tech world. <laughs> Speed of data, right? Yeah. Um, uh, one little note, because I've got the uh, agenda on my monitor here while you were talking, and on the agenda, I'd also had a session there by Jamie and Gesser on Cloud Partner Panel, but apparently that didn't happen. Yeah, it actually did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was so memorable. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, actually, in that Cloud Panel, that was, I think. Uh, the, the conclusion, uh, the many things were said there, but I think the conclusion was indeed to have some good security and data governance okay. to enable all the cool scenarios because without it, um, you have some cool tech, uh, but it doesn't really fly for a lot of companies because they need that security and governance there. Mm. And who was on the panel just, uh, was that, uh, I don't know, uh, um, Forrester or was that uh, the, the, the Googles, the Amazons and the Microsofts or what customers are using it? Who was on the panel? Um, I don't need the names. Uh, just that, uh, <laughs> I, I recall that uh, uh, the guy, the product manager from Google, was there on the panel. Okay, so the cloud providers. Other, uh, yeah, the cloud providers as okay. well, indeed. And there were some two other guys, um, but I forgot who, who they were. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll have to. I'll be on the bound to watch that one. <laughs> yeah, that's the good thing. Uh, the videos of the keynotes are actually on YouTube, so you can relive the moment. <laughs> Relive the moment. I like how you say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess that's it for the keynotes. Unless Dave has anything else to ask, go ahead. No. Let's let's get into some sessions. Yeah, let's get to the interesting sessions. Stuff. Yeah. And um, well, actually, there was uh, quite a lot of interesting sessions that uh, some of those sessions were also held at DataWorks Summit Berlin. Um, but like you said, it's always good to revisit them to see um, if your thinking has improved and uh, maybe you pick up some new details. So the first session I went to there was Apache Hadoop Yarn State of the Union, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, was a pretty good and very well visited uh, session. Mm, so it was uh, held by the Director of Engineering, Vinod Kumar Vavilapani. Probably, uh, <laughs> I'm butchering all those names. Yeah. Um, and uh, Sunil uh, Govindam, uh, which is a staff engineer at Hortomerks, and they uh, went over uh, some of the history of Apache Hadoop Yarn and uh, the future. And of course, all the current innovations in the latest H uh, uh, Hadoop release, Apache Hadoop release 3.1. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, was really good, very detailed, and also a good um, starting point for a lot of the other sessions during that uh, DataWorks Summit, uh, because he really mentioned, okay, if you want to know a little bit more about, for example, scheduling, please go to this session. If you want to know a little yeah. bit more about containers, we have also another very in-depth session later on. And uh, yeah, it was very good. It was very good to start with. Yeah, I'm just uh, quickly scrolling through the slides, and uh, it does seem a lot more extended than the Berlin version. It's a lot more technical detail in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so some some good stuff that I uh, got from that was that you saw that there was a lot of changes went into 
uh, from 2.80 to 3.10. There was a lot of uh, gyros that uh, were tracking all those changes. Mm -hmm. And you see that there's quite a big long tail of committers uh, to the Hadoop project. So, of course, uh, there's... uh, the first part of that, uh, there are a lot of contributors that have a lot of patches, but there is an enormous long tail with uh, just a few patches. That, that was good to see that there was a lot of community involvement in this new release. Yeah, it, it definitely shows that uh, far from a Hadoop being dead, it's very much alive. And in fact, the community is very much alive. It's really, it's always really good to see those sort of numbers from the, the sort of committer community developer community yeah definitely and uh, yes some of the key teams they worked on so um, i'm not gonna go uh, into all the details of that but um, i found it uh, quite interesting to see that even though hadoop already supports uh, computation on a massive scale you see that uh, there's still a few companies that are pushing the boundaries there so um, they're looking at the largest clusters uh, before last year's summit were around 6k 8k nodes mm-hmm. and they're now having clusters around 40k nodes and 20k nodes so the first 30k nodes that's a federated cluster so that's basically yeah. a cluster with a lot of subclusters. And uh, the 20K nodes was a, s- a complete single cluster. So oh. that's quite impressive. Wow. And they're actually looking at to increase the scalability of Hadoop to about 100K nodes. So that's a that's mm. a big data center. I'm guessing that the ozone is going to be a big part of that because HDFS is a bit of a limiting factor when you go to big nodes, right? The big node counts, I mean. Yeah, well, def- definitely uh, there was a lot of changes in uh, HDFS to make this all possible mm. uh, because, uh, yeah, you end up with uh, a lot of files, of course, if you have uh, such a high node count. So you yeah. need to a way to uh, to be able to handle that and to partition that. Um, yeah, so, uh, of course, you saw a lot of interesting uh, changes in the, the scheduling. Uh, what's there, I think, also important, what's driving this is that uh, if you want to run a lot of containerized workloads, you need to make sure that you can allocate a lot of containers uh, uh, at the same time. So there there has been uh, quite a few improvements uh, on that. Um, there's some better placement strategies because you want to make sure that you're um, not placing, for example, two uh, HBase region servers on the same node because then you get a lot of noisy neighbor effect. And uh, of course, uh, you also want to make sure that you're able to say, hey, I want to have some affinity, for example, uh, being able to place Storm next to HBase because uh, they, they work closely with each other. So it's always good to co-allocate them um, mm-hmm. on a single node. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Affinity and non-affinity is definitely an important thing. It's funny to see how a lot of these standard scheduler functionality is really creeping into Yarn. And I guess that's just natural when they have the Docker things coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All part of the journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, well, another key team on the platform side was usability. So uh, Apache Hadoop has a nice new UI with some nice pie graphs around uh, a cluster resource usage so you get a little bit better idea of the apps that are running on it what kind uh, the amount of resource they're using um, how much are uh, of the applications are still pending and which one which ones are unhealthy that kind of stuff so they had some nice screenshots of that new ui 
Oh, that's good. And it's, uh, it's usually kind of mm-hmm. hard to see if your if your cluster is not performing as you expected. To you have to go jump to a couple of hoops, a couple of links down to find out where actually usage is. And that's good. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah, from there on, they moved pretty quickly to the workload themes. So, and of course, containers because that's on everybody's top of mind. So, Docker, and to have a Docker runtime in Yarn, and uh, yeah, of course, uh, because. Why do that? Uh, it's a lightweight mechanism for packaging and resource isolation. And uh, yeah, it's very popular nowadays. Uh, so uh, it's really part of that DevOps um, vision, mm-hmm. let's say, uh, to be able yeah, to, uh, for anyone to run. That, you know, previously yeah, tried to sort of build um, simple yarn applications they know that there's no such thing as a simple yarn application there's a lot of yak shaving you need to do in order to get that sort of thing up and running in the first place and slider was sort of an attempt to deal with some of that with long-running services on yarn but that didn't really take off in the way that was necessarily expected and most of the slider functionality has now been absorbed into the yarn project itself so but docker is just the the, uh, the thing that everybody knows and loves when it comes to you know, deploying microservices and things like that. And so giving the ability to run simple apps on Yarn with you know, data backed from the data lake just makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah definitely. So, and uh, what you also saw that they want to make it a little bit easier to pick um, the resources so mm-hmm. the resources for your uh, yarn containers so they have uh, now introduced resource profiles and custom resource types so everybody who has used the cloud uh, you know there are all kinds of instance types and you now have a similar thing that you can set up for your yarn environment uh, which is good so for example you can say i want to have a medium container with four gigabits of uh, gigabytes of memory eight cores and no GPU cores, for example, um, and and use that as a standard for my workloads. Okay, and and that's so you've got you know types for GPU, you've got types for high memory, you've got types for you know, SSD or things like that. It's 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 quite a flexible system, from what I recall. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So um, with 3.0, indeed, they introduced GPU as a managed resource, and you also see FPGAs as a managed resource. So that's that's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, uh, yeah, the GPU support that's uh, that's a big thing, especially when you want to use TensorFlow uh, deep learning libraries on top of Yarn. Um, So there was a good in-depth session on that uh, later on as well, and. the last uh, key theme was uh, services support because if you are running a lot of long-running services on Yarn, you also need to have some discoverability of those services. So um, you need to have a kind of a DNS uh, where to, to look up where those services are running. And you also need to have a simplified API to be able to launch those services. And uh, that's all in 3.0. Um, after that, I went to the what is new in Apache Hive session. And it was a pretty good in-depth session um, talking about some of the past innovations, but also some of the more recent innovations. And one of the 
I think the most interesting ones is the materialized views. Mm -hmm. So I think that was already touched upon at the Datawork Summit in Berlin already. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, still, nonetheless, it's it's quite interesting. So what this basically is doing is that you can have, um, if you have, for example, a lot of aggregates or a lot of joins, uh, it's actually pre-calculated and it uses, for example, Apache Druid as a backing store. Um, so basically you're caching uh, that um, and you're able to, of course, uh, be able to update those cache layers. And of course, it sits next to LLP, which already provides mm -hmm. you with a kind of an in-memory cache. Uh, and this is all done to, to really make the usage of Apache Hive as much as interactive and real-time as possible. And the materialized view stuff, it's that's arriving with 3.0, or is that we do we have the in Berlin? It's at 3.1. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was slipped a little bit further back, but yeah, it sounds right. It's, it's a big change, right? Because the whole, um, what you call that uh, query optimizer actually get, takes into account if part of your query can be solved with the materialized view, it will actually use that and things like that. So it's actually a very powerful thing. And I know a couple of my customers actually can use this very well. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the yep. things I've seen as a customer recently, where they have a, a database of a billion rows, and they do a distinct year query on that, which returns four rows. Nice. Just being able to cache that or make a view of that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So one of my takeaways, at least from that session, was that there's a lot of ways that you can tweak Hive, let's say. The the only issue that I have is that there's so much knobs that you can uh, <laughs> twist and leverage that you can pull that uh, at some point it becomes quite complex to have mm -hmm. a fully optimized Hive instance um, or a cluster with Hive on top of it. And uh, for example, now with the materialized views, you have uh, Druid as a backing. But of course, Druid has all kinds of components that can be installed, need to be installed, and also need to be tweaked to work optim optimally. And yeah, I, I do see um, some challenges around mm -hmm. that. And I, I definitely think that if you have a service that allows you to, um, that does that automatically for you, I think that uh, a lot of customers will benefit from it. So there's, of course, customers that really like all those um, mm -hmm. tweaks that they can do. But I, I definitely think there's also a large part of the audience that uh, don't necessarily want to fiddle with it. They just want it to work and as fast as possible. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a whole tendency in the, in the Hadoop world now to go to the commoditization of all of the services by just making it a product you can use and not entirely have to go to school first. So, uh, yeah, I mean, both should be available. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think we've, we, we've seen this a number of times. You know, if, if you look at um, where LLAP started, you know, its very first iteration where basically you had a... a the equivalent of a radio button to, or to switch it on and like a handful of parameters and away you go. And then very quickly became clear that that was not enough configuration and that you know, far more, uh, far more bells and whistles and levers and buttons and knobs needed to be exposed until you've got to the point now where, you know, there's, there's loads of configuration, but how do you know if you've, if you've done it right? And I know Ambari tries to do, tries to give sort of recommendations um, as as best as it can, and you know there are obviously 
there are additional value add things like Hortonworks Smart Sense that will also give you recommendations as well based on your configurations. But I think we there's definitely a need for people to still have some idea of how they can simplify this. And also you've got multiple workloads and multiple workloads exactly. may actually benefit from having different settings on mm-hmm. um, on on this on these kind of layers as well. So quite how you deal with multiple workloads that maybe require different sets of settings is, st- is something that I still am not entirely clear on either. Yeah, I mean, in, in the past, I was ma- I was managing the Hadoop cluster that actually had different users and different use cases landing on it on a daily basis. It was a government-sponsored cluster that all of the institutions in the, in the Netherlands could actually just use. And we tried to optimize this thing, but the more we optimized it for, I don't know, for, for Spark, uh, Storm went uh, down the drain and vice versa. So uh, at the end, we kind of decided we'll just keep it as default as possible because the, the same default that come with Ambari actually give you a king of none but good enough for for, for everything uh, situation and for those kind of clusters having all the customization is just a bad thing but on the other hand you do have customers that do one thing very very thoroughly very deeply very massively and yeah, if they can uh, scrape out an extra percentage of performance that's just a win for them so again both both ways should be possible yeah freedom of choice always good freedom always people. good freedom <laughs> Yeah, and and my next session that I attended was completely different. Um, So it was around cybersecurity. It was uh, a talk by the folks from Interset, um, Mm -hmm. which is a cybersecurity company, uh, I think based out of Canada. And their CTO was talking about um, how machine learning can help uh, detecting cybersecurity threats, but also uh, around okay, you found an outlier, so some, some weird mm-hmm. behavior. So what? So, and now, what? how does that impact my business? So what they proposed was um, a met- mathematical method to measure cybersecurity risk. So to really, uh, based on everything they detected, so the uh, weird behavior together with, okay, the, the user that was affected, the machine that was affected, maybe the method um around uh, for example was it malware was it um, insider uh, that was uploading a lot of data to the outside um, and based on that have a, have a very fancy mathematical equation to calculate the risk and, and based on the risk score to prioritize those alerts and issues um, for uh, and, and so people can take then uh, actions on top of that uh, so they know what to work on and what to fix and that was uh, was quite good uh, quite a good session uh, um, a good structure and uh, i found it uh, yeah because i do a lot of uh, cybersecurity as well during my day job uh, quite interesting to hear around uh, how they approach behavioral risk analysis uh, when you say that, uh, my first reaction was, what? You're going to use machine learning to detect and then go back to a rule-based engine to give it, I don't know, consequences? On the other hand, this is a bit of a, uh, how do you call that, if you use multiple things at the same time, an ensemble approach to, to your machine learning or your advanced analytics process by doing a bit of machine learning, but a bit of AI if you want to, and then have some uh, yeah, older approaches to make it even better, so... 
at first was kind of like this doesn't sound good but yeah it kind of makes sense yeah i think the the other thing about that is the the cybersecurity world is is entrenched in um rule-based approaches to things it's yeah. just, just just it's what they are most comfortable with yeah, but it doesn't yeah, regardless scale. of the technology it doesn't scale um, <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> and you get rule rot and all sorts of things. There's, there's exactly. plenty of bad things about it, but it, it, yeah, it does you know, tend right? to be one of the, yeah, it, it's what they know, it's what they're comfortable with. And, you know, the some of the challenge in this, certainly when we're talking about Metron, is, is how we, you how had we to deal see with it. that, you had how to we say evolve it. that. Topic. <laughs> of course I had to say it. Every single episode, at least one mention of Apache Metron. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> and no fun. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. Anyway, okay. Sounds good. What was up next? Yeah, it was uh, was pretty good. Yeah, so up next um, is actually for me day two because actually uh, in the afternoon I needed to continue preparing my crash course, which I was giving uh, for an uh, interested audience at day three of the DataWorks Summit. Ooh, so uh, of that course later. that's. Uh, yes, definitely. So uh, that was for the Thursday morning. Uh, so. For me, uh, the next session was actually the keynote session in day two. Mm-hmm. So on Wednesday. the day two keynotes. Yeah, on Wednesday. Yeah. I see Teradata, Hortonworks, FedEx, and The Shed. Yeah, definitely. And um, so the Teradata keynote was uh, quite interesting. It was the <laughs> same one they did at the DataWorks uh, Berlin, exactly the same one. So it was a quite high-level um talk around uh, how to drive high impact business outcomes from artificial intelligence um so that uh, yeah it was uh, quite interesting uh, to hear but uh, for me it was okay okay good some some sensible uh, generalities how you would say that yeah. mm-hmm. but uh, but but nothing very specific uh, so it was all uh, good good tips good uh, common knowledge um good sensible uh, tips so but uh yeah for me n- not that interesting as a, as a presentation uh, the, the second one i found really interesting that was actually uh somitra uh burga hohan sorry for that again for that butchering of that last name i'm not very good at that and uh, that was a presentation around the http 3.0 release of hortonworks so the hadoop 3.1 release let's say and it was a demo of um, a toy car with that was actually a self-driving car. So it contains LiDAR mm-hmm. and uh, was able to, uh, during a live demo, drive self-supported around the track. Yeah, so I, I just have to interrupt cool. and, and mention the name of this session. Because can cars drive like humans? I really hope the answer is no. No. <laughs> <laughs> just drive better than humans. Humans are well. drivers. <laughs> The driver might be uh, a little bit intoxicated if you saw sort of way it uh, was driving. Oh, okay. But so uh, it was like humans then, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's definitely somebody who just came out of the bar and uh, tried to uh, steer uh, straight. Uh, but it was really good. And actually, the, the fun thing was that they the car, I thought, okay, this is, was just something they ordered from Amazon. Uh, so please get me an uh, autonomous car with a lighter on top of it and uh, some uh, GPUs. 
but actually they build it uh, as, as a, like a 20% side project okay. at, uh, at Hortonworks. And uh, actually I, I was talking to Sumitra later that day during dinner and uh, it, it actually took a village to build that car, which <laughs> was quite, quite of nice. So there was uh, actually a lot of love given to this project and um, definitely not off the shelf. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, so yeah, I found it quite, quite interesting to see that um, th those folks were able to pull off as a side project something mm -hmm. that, for example, yeah. all the, the the big ones, the Teslas um, and all the other car companies are, uh, the Googles are very heavily investing in it and uh, came with something that actually looked like an autonomous car. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so th there was no uh, interaction with uh, BMW and whatever, because I know at uh, Berlin, BMW was uh, standing there with their uh, self-driving car concept, let's say. But yep, this was just... Yep. Uh, Totally built in-house. That's nice. That kind of means yep. that the, the tools have reached maturity where anybody, even you and me, can, can actually start working with this as well. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, uh, and that was quite quite interesting. So, hopefully, he's able to also uh, bring that car to uh, some of the other DataWorks summits that are uh, going to be held in the uh, second half of uh, this year. Mm -hmm. And uh, But one thing uh, he probably needs to solve is there's actually quite a lot of batteries on top of that car because you need to drive the LiDAR, you need mm -hmm. to drive the GPUs, the cameras, and that kind of stuff. Um, and of course, the car needs to drive as well. And... Well, good luck taking that to customs now. Right? <laughs> All the security. That's, yep. Yeah. So uh, because uh, I think there's like a, a one battery maximum nowadays with with folks. So uh, yeah, let's see if he's he's able to show this uh, outside of Silicon Valley. But uh, yeah, I, I really found it an interesting uh, presentation, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it it really stresses uh, highlights that HTTP three point zero is really targeted around. Uh, data science and speci specifically deep learning GPU support of HTTP. Uh, did they share all of the in, of the real deep de details on how they built uh, the AI networks and stuff, or was it more high level? Yeah, definitely, okay. definitely they uh, they showed some of that stuff, and I think they also made the GitHub where you can look at all the okay. codes uh, public. And there's an article I think on the yeah, Hortonworks community connection around uh, the exact details. Yeah. Okay, that's uh, that's uh, that deserves a mark. <laughs> Yeah, yep. definitely. So uh, the next session was uh, from FedEx. Again, very high level. I don't have a lot of things to say, except that uh, instead of talking about employees, that she talked about teams. And uh, yeah, that's of uh, team members. So yeah, that's always something mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I find a bit weird, but uh, okay, it's the I'll, I'll go with it. <laughs> uh, so Politic you're all team great. members. You're not employees. Great. Uh, well, and actually, uh, I want to spend the most time on the last keynote, and it mm -hmm. was by Kevin Slaven from the chat. Uh, it was called How Algorithms Will Shape Our World. And that was really, really good. Uh, because um, his point was that, well, we already live in a world run by algorithms. Uh, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. if you look at uh, the stock exchange nowadays, like 95% of all the stock trade is done automatically yeah. by uh, high frequency stock trading algorithms. But he also uh, made a point that if we depend too much on that, um, on our daily decisions, when do we start to lose control? And he, he really illustrated with a, quite a few interesting examples that those algorithms are smart, but they're also very fragile. Mm -hmm. So 
he for example uh, pointed out that was i think a tweet uh, from the white house and that in that uh, tweet there was a mentioning of a bomb in the white house and that the president was hurt well actually it turned out that that tweet was sent out by uh, somebody that hacked the twitter account of the white house but what you notice is that there was of course a lot of those automated trading systems they use yep. Uh, the Twitter firehose to uh, early detect uh, uh, important events, right? Mm-hmm. To to see, for example, uh, this can mean that uh, there might be a, a yeah a, a big impact on mm-hmm. on the stock. And, and if it, you uh-huh. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a hacker because a while ago the official uh, uh, nuclear alert went out for Hawaii or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's been a few of them, haven't yeah. there? And in fact, there was one that um, that announced that there was a zombie, a- there was a zombie <laughs> <Yes>. apocalypse. <laughs> Not so much worse. Like, people believing it or people doing it. Well, yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah, and if if you're st- uh, stock trading algorithms, exactly. it, it might actually be very valuable, um, profitable to take advantage of that news mm. as early as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but sure. yeah, it it can also mean that uh, when there's something. That's for us as a human is obviously wrong. Uh, might totally tick off the algorithm. Mm-hmm. And he had an example that uh, there was actually uh, a stock company, a stock exchange company that that was uh, trying to IPO, uh, which is called Bats. And they were one of the key um, computerized exchange operators in the world. It's uh, the third largest exchange in the United States, and they actually did an IPO on their own platform. And it actually, because of a computer glitch, what really happened is never, never really um, became clear. But uh, it sent its newly issued stock in a tailspin. So uh, its own stock was listed uh, during IPO. It started out as a $16 share. But in, I think, uh, a matter of microseconds of milliseconds or seconds, uh, the stock came down to less than a penny on their own platform <laughs> during their own IPO. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not very good PR, I think. Yeah. And um, yeah, so they, they actually took the step to withdraw the IPO altogether. No so I, I think that definitely stresses um, that algorithms on their own um, might not be that trustworthy. You shouldn't blindly oh, depend on it. They're 100% but, trustworthy, uh, but you have to feed them with good, with good data. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's also um, what he actually made the case is that to keep humans in the loop, mm-hmm. so to have humans as supervisors for those algorithms. And yeah. um, so, it's, so he, for example, made the case of a chess game uh, that um, I think that uh, one of the, the famous chess masters organized an event where everybody could just turn up and use whatever means necessary to win the game. So they could use uh, fully depend on AI. They could use uh, some, some basic off-the-shelf chess program. doesn't really matter. And actually what you saw there was the folks that were winning were actually six uh, of uh, a few mediocre chess players that used mediocre chess programs. But... Uh, by working together, the algorithms and the human supervisors, mm. they were actually able to beat everybody there during that match. Yeah, and so he, he really thinks that... Sorry? The whole ensemble approach. Yeah, indeed. So keep the humans in the loop mm. and um, 
Um, at least until, of course, our AI overloads are uh, <laughs> will rise, of course, from uh, f- from the current algorithms. Then, uh, yes, then we're then we're gone. But uh, at yeah. least enjoy uh, the human su- Skynet takes over. Yeah, we just need to enjoy our uh, short time of human supervi- uh, supervision uh, until that happens, right? Hey, yeah. Skynet Watch. used to be the name of the ISP in Belgium, so it didn't survive. It's called Proxmox now. <laughs> Companies do keep popping up called Skynet, and I wonder. I always wonder about that. I mean, is, is, are they really thinking that they might become that, or are they? Are they do they just think it's funny, or I don't know? They probably strange. let an algorithm decide on the name of the company, and that's one that pops up. <laughs> maybe, maybe. It makes me think that a while ago, a company to kind of tenfolded his uh, market share by adding blockchain to his name. That was a while ago. That might also yeah. have been a uh, algorithm a result. Oh, blockchain must be good. Bye, bye, bye. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And actually, going back to the keynote, uh, I, I remember in Dublin, I think, there was also a, a, a visionary keynoter there that talked about how AI should augment the uh, the human, not replace, but augment. This is kind of the, I'm hearing the same kind of message here. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. So uh, I I really found this. Um, if you talk, uh, look at all the, the keynotes. I found this the one that was for me at least the most in- inspirational. Mm. And he really used the visuals uh, very well. So he had all kinds of nice visuals running in the background uh, that you can still see on the YouTube version of it. And uh, yeah, really good. Um, was really happy with it, and uh, um, it was a good uh, good start of the second day. Mm-hmm. And then it went all downhill. <laughs> <laughs> Just say no. No. <laughs> no. And if it went downhill, that was all dependent on my uh, s- selection of sessions because there was so much to choose from. Mm. Uh, again, um, only 10% of the sessions that were there I was able to attend. Um, so the ones that I picked was uh, uh, the one about running distributed TensorFlow in production on mm. Yarn. Um, again, a lot of folks were very interested in that because it contains TensorFlow, mm-hmm. of course, in the title, and it contains uh, uh, containers. So that's uh, that's very important for everybody. Um, after that, I went to um, a nice talk about uh, just a sketch, of course, and I think uh, Dave will be very happy because it was a talk about Apache Metron. Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> exactly. Um, after that, went to the containers and big data. So that was a talk that goes into a little bit more detail around, okay, where you need to think of when you're going to run uh, Docker containers in uh, the new yarn. So that was uh, quite good. Um, so a, a few things that uh, stood out. Uh, so they actually dividing up the big data application types in three types of classes. So the first one was jobs. So there's a batch and interactive jobs, short-lived, ephemeral. Uh, you have services, which are long-running, persistent, and you have complete platforms. Uh, so uh, one of the things that you will see uh, is, and that's something that Hortonworks also using in their test environment, is running Yarn on Yarn. So you have a complete platform that runs on top of Yarn, or, for example, a full Kubernetes um, mm-hmm. application on top of Yarn. And uh, they talked about all the complexities around uh, running these types of jobs where you need to think of some 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 good tips, some takeaways, and also some stuff that 
still needs to be developed, right? So um, especially around containerization, around stateful workloads, around networking, there's mm-hmm. already uh, quite a good, uh, a lot of work, good work done. But uh, you do notice that there's still, there might be some edge cases that don't work ideally. And especially around the tooling can also be improved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a lot of Yeah, I mean, it's right? still, it's, yeah, exactly. It's still early days <laughs> in, this, in this part. You did indeed. And yeah, again, this is exactly. only coming in uh, Hadoop 3.0 and onwards. So uh, there's no production versions of Hadoop 3.0 out there yet. So there's still some time, right? Uh, yeah, there's definitely some time. And uh, I think it's also uh, less, uh, It need, it's a journey, right? And mm-hmm. uh, the journey, we do it with the community. So um, yep. this year, there will be some new lessons that will come back at uh, the DataWorks Summit uh, 2019 mm-hmm. presentation. And uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, that was a quite uh, interesting one. Um, some some general considerations if you're running containers in production, um, you really depend on the operating system stability. So mm-hmm. you do see that some of the older operating systems are not fit for purpose. You need some of the more modern ones. Um, you need to are you have versions the versions or types. Do you mean you want to have a recent version of Debian, Ubuntu, or CentOS? Or do you say, don't use this, but only use, I don't know, Gentoo? Yeah, so so what I got from there, that it's really about the version of the operating system and not so much about types. Okay, so the uh, kernel so version, I, I do, the stuff included there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, maturity. Yeah, yeah. yes, uh, kernel version, some specific drivers, mm-hmm. especially the storage drivers, because mm-hmm. we're running a stateful workload and not a state uh, uh, less workloads, workload. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, some of the complexities around FAT containers and microservices, because if you are decomposing um, a current workload, you might actually end up with a microservice architecture. Mm-hmm. And for both of those types of workloads, you need to approach your container deployment in a different way. Yep. And of course, yeah, and I think that's that's something I also saw in a later talk uh, from Blue Data um, around stateless and stateful, because a lot of that container technology is actually created for stateless workloads, right? right? Yeah. Um, in, yeah. So uh, a lot of web services it really comes from the web application part where there's usually just a front end that talks to a back end and that back end is not necessarily on a container infrastructure Mm -hmm. so uh, and hadoop is is very much stateful so uh, you do see that there's all kinds of cases where the current uh, storage standards around uh, docker containers are not good enough and we need some innovation there Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one thing I've been missing in the whole talking about containers on Yarn is uh, things like service discovery and things like that. If, if a container comes up, how does the rest of the cluster know that that container is there and is now doing this or that service? It's all being yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. And and I think that this is one of the hard parts. So um, yeah. maybe it's good to also then move indeed to the presentation from uh, Blue Data, uh, which actually already we're working with. Uh, deploying Hadoop on Kubernetes for quite a long time. Um, so they, they sp- I think they started like uh, two years ago already with that. And that was a presentation by Anand and Nanda. And uh, again, I'm preventing myself from butchering their last names. But uh, Anand is Vice President of Products and Nanda is Senior Director of Solutions at Blue Data. 
and uh, they talked about their journey in bringing Hadoop on top of Kubernetes. So they're already offering a solution, uh, a fully managed solution around Hadoop on containers, uh, but this is uh, different because mm -hmm. they're now uh, putting a top of a, of a, uh, of on top of Kubernetes. So because yeah, uh, that's the inverse, right? Instead of having containers running on top of uh, of Yarn, having Hadoop in a containerized environment. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's indeed. So, um, um, and yeah, of course, there, then you have uh, some more complex discussion whether you want to have yarn on top of Kubernetes. Yeah. Huh? Um, I think I think I actually went to that uh, session in Berlin. Oh, and good. the thing that I thought there was, uh, I've seen this before, because the first versions of, of um, uh, what you call it, uh, CloudBreak, were actually Hadoop in a uh, container environment, and uh, it was very, very bad. The networking was horrible. It, it crashed. It wasn't stable at all. I've only started using CloudBreak once it went away from that and just installed on bare metal, which works brilliantly, by the way. So I didn't really, I wasn't convinced by their solution there. Okay. Okay. Well, they definitely pointed out some of uh, the complexities mm -hmm. that you, you're mentioning. Um, so there's a lot, uh, and, and especially because Hadoop consists of so many services mm -hmm. that all have their own ports and all have dependencies on each, each other, yeah. and they all need to be started in the right order otherwise you get some some yeah. weird effects and yeah that's in a state less uh, environment uh, you, you don't need to worry about that mm -hmm. too much right yeah, yeah it's, it's it's quite easy to to start up a, a, a quite complex microservice architecture when you don't depend too much on each other yeah. Um, and the, yeah in a hadoop that's definitely different and uh, maybe some stuff in hadoop needs to be re-architectured to mm. uh, better work together with containers uh, but there's also some work that needs to be done on the container orchestration side. So, for example, they had some key tips around Kubernetes, around in, in this piece, the controller of Kubernetes uh, that needed to be improved to be able to, to better manage uh, Hadoop components in containers. Yeah, for me, I mean, Hadoop is a kind of a middle middleware, middle layer kind of solution, which... I don't think it's a good fit for containerized environments. Running containers on top of it, yep, sure, why the hell not? But uh, putting that into containers, uh, yeah, I, I can't see Hadoop ever migrating to a kind of microservices architecture. That's one, it's moving too fast, and two, there's way too many interdependencies. But uh, hey, future will tell. Yeah, exactly. And um, well, Definitely, Blue Data doesn't have the answers, uh, all the answers right now. Uh, so for them, it's also a journey. Mm -hmm. uh, so they uh, also mentioned in uh, one of their last slides is stay tuned. Uh, we will report back with some more knowledge uh, later uh, next year, maybe. <laughs> okay. it's, it's kind of interesting that I, 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 I do agree with you, Jan, that in a number of cases, it's difficult to understand how it makes as much sense but i think what we're seeing is just everybody's moving towards containerized architectures for mm -hmm. all of their infrastructure regardless of whether it, it makes sense and they're looking to consolidate that and therefore you know Hadoop is yeah. architecture and infrastructure therefore they want to understand how it can fit into that regardless of whether it's a good yeah. fit right now i but, think but you, you had know, the same thing with uh, virtualizations 
Well, yeah, but I think at Ward's a certain points point, around uh, Ward's points around the um, the direction that you know some of the stuff may well need to be rearchitected or adapted um, to fit more of that containerized model, so that you know some of the dependencies are maybe loosened or at least mm-hmm. the interdependencies are released to a point where you know something can come up and come up and we'll just wait until something else comes up safely rather than it all falling over in a giant mess hey having idempotent black box uh, components in hadoop would be great i mean it would be, would be beneficial to, to the upgradability having different versions running lost each other yeah. stability and everything it would be great it's just that at the moment i don't see it as any kind of uh, priority in the in, in the community because they're still looking at adding functionality and not really looking at that kind of uh, can i call it polish uh, i don't know i think it's somewhere in between functionality and polish because i, I think much like the um, the root cloud mm-hmm. i think the 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 move to to containerization is is Perhaps not quite as um, not quite as aggressive as the, as the move to cloud, but mm-hmm. it's certainly something that many organisations are adopting. Yeah. So I don't think it's necessarily just polish on top. I think yeah. it is it is something that's going to involve some fundamental changes. Yeah, when I said virtualization, I didn't really mean cloud. Uh, I meant that uh, there was a no, time no, where uh, every data center from every, or for every organization had to be a, I don't know, VMware cluster and everything had to be on that virtualization. And I actually saw, uh, I actually managed environments where I simply had one VM on one chassis doing a thing. At that <laughs> point, it doesn't make sense. And I've seen that go go backwards again, that that's no longer the case. Still, virtualization clusters in cloud and on-premise do have a sense. They do make sense. They have their uses and use them when they can be used. Great. Uniformity, stability, it's good. But forcing everything into a certain paradigm, a certain framework is never good. And I'm feeling that Docker is a little bit going too far overboard there. Everything has to be Docker. Well, choices again. Choices is good. Yep, this is true. Yeah, so, uh, and I definitely think that, uh, especially around dependency management, Docker, and, and standardization, eh, that you have uh, a repeatable builds, uh, you, you have uh, quite a portable container that you can either use on-premise in the cloud. It definitely has a lot of advantages. But what you do see with, uh, I think, with Hadoop is that uh, it's not yet in the DNA of Hadoop uh, to provide the best platform for that. Mm. And, uh, that's something you, yeah, you're swimming upstream here. Yeah. Um, and you should it provide? Catch up. Should it provide? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, I, I think always with those things is that um, uh, it's, it's probably something in between, right? So they're... they're uh, Use the best tool, uh, mm-hmm. the right tool for the job, and sometimes in the, indeed it is container containerized workloads, and sometimes uh, you just need to use the old boring old tech that actually works. Hey, and the beauty of our open source is if there's not enough demand for it, it will be built. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. definitely, definitely. So uh, yeah, that uh, that was a uh, quite a good, uh, interesting presentation. Um, yeah, some other uh, presentations that uh, I. Didn't see, but uh, I definitely checked out the slides. Uh, that was one from um, around HDFS tiered storage, mm-hmm. um, which which might be a very boring topic for a lot of folks, but I found it quite interesting. Um, 
but uh, uh, this was a talk by Chris Douglas, a principal research software engineer at Microsoft. So, colleague of you, John. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Thomas de Moore, he's an object stores architect for Western Digital. And um, what they were introducing was um, a way to let ACFS play nicely with object stores. So yeah. uh, we, I think you already mentioned earlier on the new object store f- uh, that will yeah, replace on. or sit side by side with HFS. But this is another uh, way to approach uh, the same uh, pro- problem or, the, or, pro- or provide an alternative solution. And it's actually um, being able to uh, have an external tor- storage tier for HFS, uh, which is called... Uh, Provided this is HDFS storage policy, so yeah, we already have disk, we have SSD, we have RAM, we have archive, and this is a new one. It's called provided, mm-hmm. and what it does, it um, actually um, writes back to the remote storage, so that can be, for example, an object storage, and it loads data on demand to the HDFS layer. So, um, and in that way, um, you have a very transparent way of working with the data, and still being able to talk with it in a standard fully supported HDFS manner, but on the, the back end, actually use some of the uh, available remote storage, either being, for example, um, uh, some of the network attack storage, uh, maybe object storage from the cloud, um, uh, that kind of stuff. So that was quite uh, quite interesting to see. And that's also coming, I believe, with uh, the new H- uh, or how do you say that? Apache Metro. Oh, Apache Metro. <laughs> Yay, I just want well, to well, name it another <laughs> another time. All those projects, it comes with Apache Hadoop 3.1. So that's uh, that's important. Um, and, and it was quite good because you, you, what I typically see in practice is that uh, you have all kinds of solutions, network attached solutions th- that already interact with Hadoop. But they are not standard. They're not fully transparent, and that so there's all kinds of uh, uh, nuances to the support of the standard Hadoop stack uh, around security, for example, uh, around component compatibility. And you don't want to do uh, ideally. You want to have a very standard environment, even if you have a different type of storage. And uh, yeah, this is uh, this Jira or everything that was under this uh, specific Apache Hadoop Jira actually takes care of that. So mm-hmm. really interesting to see what the experience will be from customers that are gonna use this. Yeah, it kind of sounds like kind of an abstraction layer underneath HDFS to make it run with uh, the hardware. So even if HDFS gets replaced by Ozone which is the goal I've heard, uh, it should still be able to use this. Because basically Ozone just gives you a bigger memory space and things like that, but it's still a, a block store kind of approach, so it should still yeah. be able to leverage this. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah found definitely interesting. Um, yeah, and some other interesting talks. It's, of course, uh, we are in Silicon Valley, so there's some good technical representation there from tech companies so that uh, for example linkedin had a nice presentation talking a bit about their uh, journey so far so um, they talked about the growth so they moved for example from 2015 they had about one petabyte and 
the end of last year, they're now at four petabyte and they're running into some challenges and they talked about how they are solving those challenges. And that's the nice thing about this presentation was that you saw that actually some of the issues they run into and the fixes they applied actually were fed back to the Hadoop project. So you see really community at work here. So mm -hmm. companies that are pushing the boundaries of Hadoop and uh, making sure that everybody from the Hadoop ecosystem can take advantage of that. So I found that, all, yeah, that's always a very nice uh, presentation, I think. And they were, I mean, they were going through their journey to cloud as well. Is that, um, was that something they mentioned? Um, so uh, that's something I don't recall that they mentioned. No, no. Okay. So this was the team that was not yet informed that they're moving to the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for all the great work and all the patches, um, but we're moving to the cloud. It's all going to be different. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So um, yeah, that's always the case. Um, so some some nice slide they had in their deck was. Um, so that was actually a quiz. Uh, maybe let's see if you know the uh, the answer to that. Uh, so what do Hadoop clusters and particle colliders, so the uh, the mm -hmm. large hadron particle collider, have in common? What do they have in common? They're down they half the year. Send you spinning round and round for days. <laughs> ah, not so <laughs> negative. Come on. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Nah. So so. Uh, the improbable events happen all the time. <laughs> so that's... Uh, <laughs> uh, so there's always something right. weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. If it's... Maybe it's, it's, it's not downtime, but there's definitely always something uh, funky. And uh, that's the way it is. It's, it's just uh, a very big environment with a lot of processes working at the same time. And um, if you have a chance of a weird state occurring that will definitely happen um, definitely on some such a big system that's more the norm than it's the exception so uh, you need to make sure that you can handle that um, mm -hmm. that you uh, are able to handle those improbable events and have some good ways to resolve those um, and hopefully in a way that your large hadron particle collider doesn't go down for months <laughs> Actually, to be honest, yeah. in the Hadron Collider, they like these strange things because that means they invented a new isotope or something and they can name it. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, you can create a nice study. You can get Nobel Plans Prizes. <laughs> it's very good, yeah. yeah. More funding. Do it all over again. All right. And, uh, well, there's two other presentations uh, that I found very interesting and there was one that was from uh, it was actually co-presentation with Micron and uh, Sumitra from Hortworks and it was around the impact of using flash drives with Hadoop 3.0 so uh, and really uh, what they did is showing uh, some real-world use cases and some actual proof points, some some real results. So uh, Micron, um, I think they're uh, a, a semiconductor manufacturer, mm -hmm. a pretty big yeah. one. Uh, they have quite a big deployment. So they have currently they have two Hadoop clusters with uh, more than 500 data nodes and uh, about 28 petabyte of HDFS storage. So that's uh, that's pretty impressive. They have um, around uh, 
64,000 hive tables and they're running more than half a million jobs a day. So they definitely have an environment that's uh, that's serious. Um, and uh, what they did is actually they're also creating uh, SSDs uh, because they're they're creating microchips, but also SSDs, and they're trying to use some of the SSDs in their clusters and to see what advantages it will give them compared to a full spinning disk setup. And uh, they they actually saw some uh, some interesting results. So first of all, um, one of the things they found out that actually the enabling uh, or putting the yarn cache on SSD had the most impact because it impacted uh, queries that had a uh, create shuffle phase. And uh, uh, that's definitely something uh, where there was a lot of uh, IO mm -hmm. um, operations. And if you don't have IO contention there, that really improves your throughput. So they saw a lot of uh, improvement there up to 2.5x. Uh, query improvements with the uh, TPC DS Hive benchmarks on uh, longest running queries. And uh, they made it also quite concrete for the audience uh, what the advantage is when you're just adding uh, SSDs to your existing nodes and not, not all the nodes, but just, uh, for example, just one drive uh, and 12 normal drives. And they said, well, on a 200-node cluster with every node just one SSD, or NVM uh, storage, we think you get the performance benefits of adding 80 additional nodes to that same cluster. So that's that's really impactful. Um, and yeah, it was also massive. really good to see that this was based on real performance benchmarks. Mm. That's nice. That's really nice. It, it's nice to see some actual data around that. It's, the, some, it's this kind of thing that we've often, certainly I've often talked about with customers, you know, don't necessarily go all SSD, but add one for you know a few key operations, and you'll see a, a, an improvement. But it's always been difficult to give exact numbers around that, so that's really going to be mm -hmm. very useful. That's going to be depending yeah. on what they're doing as well, right? Because uh, I mean, this this PACD, so that's uh, Hive querying. If you're yeah, looking yeah, at Spark, for instance, uh, okay, your your job start faster because it can read the data in faster, perhaps. But once it's running, it shouldn't make a difference anymore. Yeah. Still, Hive is one of the biggest workloads, so it's definitely important. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, definitely, if you're looking uh, to get uh, the most uh, bang for the buck, uh, think of adding at least one uh, NVM or SSD drive to your cluster nodes, uh, because it can give you quite a lot of improvements. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, some uh, some good takeaways from that session. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the last session uh, that I again didn't visit, but uh, we still have the slides, was the one about Uber. Um, and Uber was it was a bit of a weird presentation because they were basically saying we love Presto, um, and doesn't. we don't like Hive. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they uh, they have uh, currently have two clusters: one application cluster, one ad hoc cluster, and uh, around uh, uh, five petabytes of data. So not that much, but they do have around two hundred k queries per day. And they use uh, a lot of Presto there. Um, so, and uh, uh, w what their talk was about is um, they had some geospatial queries that they tried to do in Hive. Um, and they got a quite nice uh, speed up by improving some of the characteristics of um, the way they used Hive. But um, they mentioned that actually 
using the same geospatial stuff in Presto actually gave them much faster mm-hmm. um, results. So their query run, run, ran faster. Uh, they didn't need to rewrite the query. So for, for some of the issues they had with, with Hive was that they need to write Hive-specific queries. But Presto, they didn't need to do that. And of course, uh, they were able to get much more speed uh, from Presto than they got out of Hive. So uh, that was their conclusion there. Uh, yeah, I, I found it... It, I, I think it's definitely something about okay, uh, using the right tool for the right mm-hmm. job. Eh? That's, yeah, exactly. that's always the case, especially around uh, geo-querying. Exactly. That uh, doesn't really seem like a candidate for Hive or anything like SQL. to be graphed yeah, or something. Exactly. And uh, uh, so uh, some of the things that, uh, for example, Presto doesn't do very well and Hive uh, does a little bit better. Um, uh, so, for example, Presto doesn't have fault tolerance. So if you need fault tolerance, then mm-hmm. Presto is not uh, a good candidate for you, of course. So, uh, of course, if you take away such requirements, then, of course, you end up with a system that might be faster. Uh, For example, uh, with Presto, if you do a join, um, if it doesn't fit in memory, it just fails because Presto (laughs) is largely memory-based. Fail fast. Okay. (laughs) Fail fast, yeah. Well, uh, so, yeah, okay. Uh, So, it's definitely something that if, uh, if you're looking at Presto, you're looking at an... An, an execution engine, a query mm-hmm. engine that's that's fully optimized for speed. Yeah. So, smaller yeah. data sets, right? Uh, smaller data sets, maybe mm-hmm. indeed, uh, because it all needs to fit in data in, in memory. Yeah. So you you can't have very big data sets and big uh, joins. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just, yeah, just so it makes sense. Clarify, yeah, go just ahead. To clarify, Hive has, has always been designed from the very beginning to make sure you always get a result. Yeah. You know, it's got a lot faster over time, and I'm sure will continue to improve in speed. But it it's always been designed. You know, one of the primary design constraints around it was it should always re- return something. It should never fall over. Yeah, 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 and data size should never matter. Yeah, data set size. So I was. I'm actually wondering why they're doing this in uh, Presto, not in Spark. Because if it's a memory bound thing anyway, then Spark will still be faster. They have a lot more freedom. Yeah, so th- the reason I think is they want to have uh, basic queries, um, SQL queries. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, you can do that in Spark as well, but uh, exactly. maybe Presto gives them a, a little bit more standardization. Mm. Oh, well, I guess we'll never know. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, as as you said earlier, right tool for the job. It worked for them. They're happy with it. Yeah. Good for them. That's because usually the yeah, biggest... It, it, so Oh, yes. So, yeah, it reminds me a little bit about, uh, for example, the cup theorem, what you have mm-hmm. with uh, big, with distributed systems. So um, uh, you have uh, consistency, you have availability, and you have partition tolerance. And if you take one of them away, of course, you can have full consistency or full availability if you don't ma- uh, mind too much that your partition tolerance is a little bit lower. And, yeah, th- I think that's what you, what you do here as well with Presto. You just optimize a certain scenario. And, of course... Uh, it will be better outperforming Hive uh, if Hive has uh, other um, requirements around uh, fault tolerance and query completion and, uh, for example, the ability to spill to disk, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So one thing you haven't mentioned in depth is your crash course. How did it all go? <laughs> what was it all yeah. about? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So that was actually on the, the last day of Summit. So uh, Summit this year was, uh, together with the Monday, was actually four days. So started out with Monday with the meetups, and then two days of sessions. And the third day was also sessions, but we also did a Apache Metron crash course. Um, so for the folks that don't know Apache Metron yet, um, they're probably not listening too much to this podcast because I think uh, <laughs> <laughs> they've... <laughs> mentions apache metron i like to mention it it now and again yes yes now and again so it's a it's a cybersecurity framework on top of uh big data technology ah that's what it is it yeah indeed and um yeah uh, you might have noticed that cybersecurity (laughs) tends to be uh, um, quite a hot topic nowadays so there there was a good interest uh in the crash course uh to so and during the crash course what we actually did is we had folks that were attending that never played yet with Apache Metron have them an, uh, a good initial experience. So uh, have a few work them on a few labs. So first of all, we are going to explain some of the concepts of uh, Apache Metron, and uh, after that, we let them play around with Apache Metron in a structured way, and uh, so they were able to see some of the key components of the key features of Apache Metron in real life and working on their laptop. So that was pretty good. Um, uh, What you definitely see is that uh, with cybersecurity, it might be a smaller audience than what you would imagine when you have, for example, a Spark crash course or uh, or a very generic topic like a cloud crash course. But the folks that were there were very involved and it was really good to work with. Um, And uh, yeah, but... uh, it's always always also funny that uh, you see all kinds of new issues arising that you didn't see in the preparation. So that uh, that's always uh, good. So uh, you have a little bit of chaos chaos monkey there uh, that you need to uh, tackle. So uh, one of the things that we ran into was, uh, for example, if you start up a lot of instances uh, at the same time on Amazon, you actually notice that those instances they might be co-allocated or something but it will affect the stability um, of those instances and some of the instances didn't come up they were just spinning there with 100 cpu and that never ended and of course we never saw that uh, during the preparation uh, but you see that when you're actually doing that in uh, in practice so some of the lessons learned that we take away from this crash course is uh, for example uh, um, spin up those instances in multiple regions in amazon uh, so for example we use the amazon cloud now and uh, that's something we can do quite easily uh, so let's take advantage of uh, that cloud elasticity uh, for our next uh, version of the crash course hey, i have to say this you could use azure sorry i have to say this <laughs> oh yeah well i mean if, if you guys would like to sponsor you know give us some free credit then we'd be happy to well, let me know i'll get you in touch with the, the guy that knows the guy who knows the guy okay <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah definitely so so maybe uh, i was talking about different regions why not go multi-cloud right then, uh, yeah and everybody's happy of choice which is actually yeah. a good idea actually because a lot of people i mean a lot of times when i go to uh, hackathons at customers it's also multi-cloud because you have different departments that have affinity with different clouds out there and any big company out there is doing multi-cloud anyway so totally okay with it yeah, yeah uh, indeed indeed and, and and one other lessons learned but that was more for me is that i'm horrible at windows so uh, we need <laughs> Join to <the> club. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, so so uh, of course I started out using Windows, but at some point I switched over to the Mac, and of course all my servers are Linux based mm-hmm. that I interacted with, and we need to establish an SSH connection to the instances that were running on the cloud. And the folks are using PuTTY, but and they of course need to use, because we use SSH, uh, so they needed to have a key, the private key on their machine and be able to log in. Well, that's that's quite easy to do on a Linux machine, but I had no clue how to do that <laughs> in PuTTY and it was not very straightforward. Can I give you an idea? Uh, yes, please, because I'm, I'm I'm now making notes then. Because <laughs> yeah, I hate PuTTY. I mean, I've used it for a long time because it was the only way of on a Windows machine to be able to do this, but I always hated it because it is clunky. Since Windows 10, you have that thing called the Linux subsystem for Windows 10. And yeah. it's, you can choose now to have it Ubuntu, uh, SUSE, uh, Debian, there's no CentOS yet, but you have flavor choice in there as well. And basically, yeah, exactly. once it's installed, you open up a WinTerm, you open up a, a, a console window, which is just a bash shell, and it's just Linux. It just works, and I'm using it all the time. Yeah, the problem with nice. that is at a, at a crash course event, you know, you're not going to be able to get someone to install the X number of gigabytes of that. This should be installed the- by everybody anyway who's working Windows, because yeah. Linux is just better. <laughs> Sorry. <I know. laughs> but uh, also, it's going to become a standard part at some point, so it's going to get better anyway. But yeah, in, they have the same problem with better. PuTTY, right? Because if people ha- can't install their Linux, they can't install PuTTY yeah. either. So it's the same problem there. Just give them advance warning, do this. And it works very seamlessly. You can use SSH agents. So if you have a key that has a, a passphrase in it, it can just retain that across different windows. And it just works. I'm converted. Yeah. Okay. Great tips. I'm I'm writing them down. That's that's definitely going to be in the notes <laughs> for the next crash course. So uh, and also I shouldn't definitely not forget mentioning that I didn't do the crash course uh, alone. Definitely not by long shots. Actually, a lot of work and preparation and presentation and help uh, was done by Carolyn Duby, which is um, another colleague of mine from Hortoworks. Um, I, I definitely want to give her the, the credits because. Uh, I think uh, she she did a lot of stuff around uh, creating the labs and, uh, uh, of course, the presentation there. So props mm-hmm. to uh, Carolyn. Yeah, awesome. on the agenda, I will see this, this, this Dave Russell mentioned there. I mean, is he just cyber-squatting a cybersecurity meet? Yeah, yeah. He, he was mentioned indeed, <laughs> but uh, he decided to go surfing in Australia. So. <laughs> Love it. Some yeah, folks it, need to do it, the work when he's uh, enjoying uh, the scenery down on hobbits in New Zealand, and you know, <laughs> stuff's got to yeah. be done. He likes delegating. I, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, any what were your, what was your sort of your overall impression, Water? Right, you know, DataWorks Summit San Jose. What what was the what was your overriding thought around how it all went and your general experience? Yeah, so from an organizational side, I think it was flawless. That um, yeah, it was really good organized. The location was good. Um, actually, the meals during lunch were actually edible, um, wow. which is uh, always a challenge sometimes in the, in the US, especially mm-hmm. when you come from Europe. Um, and uh, yeah, there was so much good content. So for me, it was a, a very good experience again. Um, Unfortunately, I cannot uh, clone myself yet. So, yeah, that's the only downside, I think, uh, that I can mention is that there's so much good stuff and uh, so much uh, good folks to talk to, to network as an opportunity there that, uh, yeah, for me, maybe we could even stretch it to like two weeks uh, and I'm still able to enjoy it. 
Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm just. I'm so glad that the sessions are, the majority of the sessions anyway are, are available online or will be available online with YouTube. So you can, the the slides on their own are good, but having someone actually talk through them mm-hmm. is in many cases much much preferable. So even if you can't attend it, you know, if you can't attend certain sessions, that's one way to catch up. But if you can't attend the conference at all, you know, just dedicate a day or so and and just kind of. Look at the playlist, look at the sessions, look at the agenda, look at Jon's dashboard, by all means, that's still up yeah. there as well. And, uh, you know, go spend some time, get some knowledge. Yeah, because it's the only way to learn this stuff, because I have not seen a single course or curriculum or whatever that can actually keep you up to date with this stuff. It's just moving too fast. No, no, it's, it, this, the speed of this stuff is, yeah, by the time the course is out, the, <laughs> the text moved on by six months, so good luck. Okay. All right. Uh, I have one question for Ward. Yeah, go for it. What is your favorite programming language? <laughs> <sighs> can, can we start with something simple like Vim versus Emacs or something? <laughs> <laughs> I like it didn't go OSX versus Windows. Thank you. Spaces yeah, versus enough. tabs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Python guy. Tabs wins. Okay. 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 No, I, I, I definitely have an answer to to it. So um, I actually like Erlang. Do you know that? Oh God, that's a long mm-hmm. time ago. Yeah, it is actually. Uh, well, a lot of people are users of it in a sense because most of the uh, mobile telephone gateways mm-hmm. are uh, they're done by Ericsson and it's actually running Erlang. So it's one of the first languages that uh, did concurrency right yeah. so it uh, introduced the actor model and mm-hmm. you see that uh, nowadays um, s- stuff like uh, aka eh, libraries like aka they tend to use quite a lot of the concepts that were invented by erlang okay um, so yeah it's a not pure functional language like it is for example with um, haskell which is uh, yeah for me still ungraspable ungraspable mm-hmm. it's it's uh, quite hard to uh, get around with it but uh, uh, Erlang is, is quite practical functional language and I, I really like it but uh, unfortunately it is uh, doesn't doesn't have the critical mass as uh, Node.js for example and uh, .NET and, uh, and and Java but uh, well um, it, it still has a go. very warm you've got to mention Go Everyone's got to mention Go. Oh, yeah, Go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I, I, yeah, PHP and... and Perl, Ruby, Perl, Perl. Perl. Okay, t- take your favorite. Uh, yeah, so, so uh, yeah. But um, that's... Uh, you mentioned uh, that's, it, I had to ask. That would be my answer. Yeah, indeed. So, uh, so if you uh, need to rant about it, uh, let me know. I'm on Twitter, so uh, happy to uh, <laughs> have some interesting discussions about it. All right. So there is, there is of course, uh, one question that we always ask our, our guests, and that is, uh, how would you describe Hadoop to someone who's never heard of it before? Oh, man. Yeah, I heard that before on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, you should have been prepared. I should have prepared, so I have a very smart answer. <laughs> um, well, I have, I have a cynical one. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Sure. It's uh, it's just a fancy bash script executed on multiple computers. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a wrap. No, no, that's a 
that that's that's not true now but uh, 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 yeah so it, it's, it's always quite hard uh, so uh, what I typically say is uh, it, it is a big data operating system so you have an operating system for a single machine uh, but uh, to be able to work effectively uh, with a, a large group of machines ideally like the 100k that we're pushing for with Apache Hadoop you need to have a big data operating system um, and uh, that's usually how I describe it and uh, people tend to get it if you describe <laughs> it like that All that's right. important okay cool. any last yeah, any last words from you Ward you happy uh, I'm always happy you're always happy well thank and you very thank much. you for having me uh, hey, thank you for being here and uh, telling us about your San Jose uh, experience it's almost like being there almost <laughs> <laughs> Again, yeah, thank you, Ward, for your time. Um, we will have you on again very soon. <laughs> don't, don't spoil it yet, because this is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Ward, for helping us and prepare this massive uh, serving of bite-sized big data. We will be back next week with a new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringalpha.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the AdHadoopCast tag, and you can contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. Until next time, my name is John. My name is Dave. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then.